Good morning. Our scripture reading for the day comes from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If you wouldn't mind turning in your Bible to the scripture, please. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm in a little book club, and this month we read, it was a book that was very popular in like 2017 called Hillbilly Elegy. I know some of y'all have read it. It spent many years or many weeks on the New York Times bestselling list. If you haven't read it, it, it tells a story about uh, a guy that grew up in um, poverty and, and grew up in kind of a hard situation, and he made it all the way, all the way to Yale Law School. And the reason the book got so much traction is that doesn't happen that often. For somebody to move from a situation of poverty to a situation of really kind of the elite areas of American life. But it's an interesting story. It tells a lot of different things. Uh, it gives a lot of different accounts in the book. One of the accounts that he talks about when he first got to Yale, he goes out to a dinner and they ask him if he wants sparkling water. And he thinks like, well, sparkling water. He thought sparkling just meant like nicer water than other kinds of water. And so they serve him some, you know, Pellegrino, some sparkling water, and he takes a sip. And of course, it's his first time he's ever had, you know, carbonated water. And he spews it out and he says, there's something wrong with this water. And of course, he's at this nice dinner and he kind of makes a fool of himself. But we got to talking about what's been called in our little book club, the imposter syndrome, where... You're kind of in a place, you're like, man, I am over my head here. Like, how did, I, how did I show up in this room? How did I show up in this space? And it was a really great conversation. And one of the guys was talking about himself in middle school. And uh, he said, you know, when I was in middle school, he's like, I didn't say a word like the entire three years. I was so awkward. I was so anxious. I was just so nervous all the time that I was going to do something Wrong, And it, it led to this conversation that these, you know, four or five middle-aged men were having about ourselves as middle schoolers and just some of the things you learn in middle school and how kind of society works in middle school. And it's a very nerve-wracking time. You're, you're, you're very obsessed with kind of the idea of rank in middle school, right? What's the, what's the cool lunch table to sit at? And if you can't make it in there, maybe you can make it to the second coolest lunch table, if you start getting to the third coolest lunch table, you know, then you got problems. And, you know, even within those tables, like the prettiest and the coolest and like the best athlete sits kind of in the middle and then everybody kind of ranks out from, from there. It's a time where you're, you're very obsessed with rank. It's also like middle schooler has a, middle school has a strong cancel culture, you know, like if, if you do something wrong in middle school, like if you're the smelly kid or you talk to the wrong person or you're perceived as, you know, being friends with that guy, then you can get canceled really fast. And it's just interesting how a lot of these things that we start to learn in middle school morph, change, but ultimately just kind of stay the same. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been in this series that we're calling life together. And what we've been saying is that the Christian life is necessarily tied to the Christian community, that there really is no such thing as an isolated Christianity. You may call um, 
a life alone, the Christian life, but that's not really the Christianity of the Bible. That, that true Christianity, the Christianity of our Lord Jesus, necessarily calls us to one another. That it calls us into what we know as a church, a local church body. It's not just centered on yourself. It's centered on the whole community of believers. Uh, Christianity is, is more, you may say, well, what is Christianity? Is it just a truth claim? Is it just about having some sort of faith? Of course, it includes truth and it includes faith. But ultimately, Christianity is this. It, it is knowing God through Jesus. That is the claim of the Christian life, that you can actually know God through Jesus. And if you do know God through Jesus, then he necessarily calls you toward the other people that know him through Jesus. You are called to one another. The New Testament talks a lot about this idea of the church. The Greek for church is ecclesia. And, you know, a lot of people, if you ever come to First Sunday, we talk about this. What is the church? What does ecclesia mean? And I think kind of the best way that, that we like to talk about it is ecclesia, the church, is the people, those people who have been called out by the gospel. The gospel that has spoken to you and to you and to you has called you out. It's called you out from the world, but it's also called you together. It's the people who've been called out by the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ has penetrated your heart. It's those who've been called together in the gospel. And then those who have a mission, who've been sent out on mission for the gospel. You, you want to take this gospel to others who haven't heard it. You, you want to see the kingdom of God that he's called you into to go forward. This is the life of the church, and it really is the result of knowing God. And one of the reasons that we've been spending so much time on this, this idea of being called together and what life together looks like, is that it is so different. The Christian life together, the Christian call to community, these Christian calls to one another are so, so different than the waters that we normally swim in. They're, they're so different that it's even hard for us to understand sometimes. It's so different than middle school. <laughs> it's so different than these patterns that we've been learning all along. A world that is obsessed with rank and appearing cool and putting away anything that might make you look bad. In this life together, as we've been seeing over these few weeks, we're called to do things like love one another, as we looked at the first week in John 13. Now, you hear John 13, love one another, and you're like, yeah, of course, love one another. Yeah, who would, who would want to do that? Until Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Sacrifice for one another. Embarrass yourself for one another. Humble yourself before one another. Forsake yourself for the sake of the other. And then you're saying, okay, well, that's, that's not just something that's cross-stitched on a nice pillow somewhere. That's real. But next week, we looked at confess your sins to one another. In a world that wants to hide everything that might appear wrong, the Christian one-anotherness, the Christian call to community says, no, actually do the opposite. Go ahead and get all the stuff inside of you that you know is weird and creepy that everybody would think you're weird for and, and tell it to people so that you can actually be healed. So they don't just appear to be whole and righteous, but you actually become righteous. And of course, last week we said live in harmony with one another 
Consider the other person. Don't always be having to be the one that has the solo, but, but, but bear with one another. Don't be haughty. Don't always be seeking prominence. Now, you hear these one at a time. You're one of these sermons at a time, and you might think, okay, well, I can do that. I can go, I can go love one another. I'll try a little harder this week, you know. Now, I, uh, I've been in a church when, like, the deacon, you remember the church, you ever been to a church where, like, they take the offering up and then, like, the deacon prayer, the praise right afterward? Uh, the church I pastored in Indiana, that's what it was like. They had this, like, offering march in the middle of the church, and the deacon always prayed, and the guy always prayed, Lord, help us do a little better this week than we did last week, right? And it was a good, genuine prayer, and we're not knocking this person. But maybe you, you hear one of these sermons, and you think to yourself, you know what? I can do it. I can just do a little better. But you start hearing them one after the other. Love one another. Confess. Live in harmony with one another. You start hearing these one another commands, one after the other, you realize there's 59 of them. And the only right response to that is to say, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> this is not who I am. This is not how I'm really like. I'm really like myself in middle school. I'm really like the person that's obsessed with rank and looking good and making sure that I'm doing the right thing. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. This is the problem with any sort of Christian moralism is you can't do it. You can't do it. Even the staunchest moralist among you, when you really start to understand the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the heart of Christ, you can't live up to it. You can't be moral enough. It's too conservative for the conservative. It's also too liberal for the liberal. When you really start to understand the radical grace that is offered in the gospel and the restoring power of the gospel that reaches to the person who's farthest away from God, it even makes the most progressive person among you squirm a little bit. You're too, it's too conservative for the conservative, it's too liberal for the liberal. When you really start to understand the heart of God, all of us say, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with my heart? It's not like this. And you come to the only conclusion, the conclusion that you should come to, and that is that you need a new heart. And that is the offer of the gospel. That if you know God in Christ, you receive a new heart. You are transformed. You aren't conformed to the course and the way of this world like we've been being conformed since we were in middle school, but actually you are transformed into the very image of God. This is what the gospel does as it penetrates and is applied to and runs deep into your soul. And one of the ways that the Lord does this his vehicle for this is his church. When the word of God is lived out by spirit-filled followers of Jesus, right? When the word of God, the truth that God has given us, is lived out, is, is actualized, is manifested by spirit-filled followers of Jesus, the result is transformation. You'll be transformed. You, you're, you're conformed. You're transformed into the image of Christ, which brings us to Galatians 6, this command today, our next one another, to restore one another. When someone falls, when someone's sin is exposed, when someone messes up, don't just run away from them. Don't just cancel them. Restore them. Brothers, if anyone 
is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Restore one another. And there, there are three implications in this passage that I want to look at with you today that, that I think are so true of the Christian life. The first is this idea of Christian correction. Secondly, Christian restoration. And then finally, Christian watchfulness. So let's look at these. Christian correction. There, there is an implication. If anyone is caught in a transgression, right? If anyone's transgression comes to light, there's an implication here that, that Christians are to be correcting one another, coaching one another, calling out sin in one another's lives. As we grow as a church, both numerically and in, I pray, maturity, this is going to be incredibly, increasingly important for us. Are we, are we this, are we this? Are we correcting and restoring? How do you know, it's a good question, how do you know that someone really loves you? Like, what's a good test for that? How do you know that someone loves you, right? Is it if they just tell you they love you? Is that the test? It's like, well, if they tell me they love me, they must love me. Some of y'all is like, can y'all tell me how that works out all the time? That, that might be true, but it, it's also probably not the best test, right? Words are easy to say. But how do you know if someone really loves you? You know if someone really loves you, at least one of those tests is this, is that it's a person who's willing to correct you and after that, who's willing to stay with you and restore you, bring restoration to your life. There's a lot of people that may say they love you, but because correction is awkward and hard and could be embarrassing or difficult, they never say a word. They just let you do your thing, right? Because who wants to deal with it, right? There's some people that might correct you, right? You know people like this too. They don't have any problem correcting you. But they're certainly not concerned with restoring you. You know, they're like, okay, I got a correction. I call these like the Bible verse machine gun people, right? They're like, I got a Bible verse for you. You know, you know these guys. But you know if someone really loves you, when they're willing to correct you, when they're willing to see a pattern of sin in your life, yet say, but I love you, and I'm here, and I'm gonna be with you, and we're gonna get through this, and we're gonna heal over this. That is, that is how you know you're actually in a covenant community. That's how you're in a community that, that really loves one another enough to, and really loves God, enough to see godliness manifest in one another's lives. You know, John Calvin, who thought and wrote a lot about the church, who has been very influential toward the Protestant church, he wrote the three functions of the church. I think this is interesting. John Calvin says the three functions of the church, and it's interesting his order. Number one, church discipline. Number two, the pure preaching of the word. And number three, the right observation of the sacraments. Now, I may say, you know, I think you should explicitly say, he would say this is implied in the preaching of the word, but I may say something like working toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission or something else. But the, the point is, is this is interesting, his first point. How do you know if it's a church? How do you know if this thing is actually a church? The first mark is church discipline. If it's just preaching, 
If it's just singing, if it's just, you know, that kind of thing, it, it's not a church. It may be a good producer of Christian goods, but it only becomes a church when the people are concerned with one another enough to stir one another along, to correct one another, to love one another, to pursue holiness together. That's when it becomes a people called out by the gospel, called together in the gospel, sent out on mission for the gospel. Now, I know you hear that word. Some of you will hear that word, church discipline. You're like, I don't know about that word. It's kind of got a bad reputation. You know, it, you, I would say church discipline needs to hire a new PR agency. You know, when I first heard the word church discipline, you know what came to mind? Have you all ever seen The Crucible by, uh, like with Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder? Remember that movie? That's kind of what I think. It's like the crazy church people that always have a face like this and they're kind of coming around to get you. You know, they're kind of, if you sin, watch out. They're kind of after you. I think that's the way a lot of people think about this idea of church discipline. But when we look in the Bible, and I'll say this, my, actual, my own experience of it has been nothing like this at all. A few weeks ago, we talked about James 5, confessing your sins one to another. And the fruit of that, I, I just want to kind of commend you as a church. I've seen and heard about so much just confession. People saying, hey, would you pray for me? I'm dealing with this. I'm fighting this sin. Come alongside me. People being open and honest, revealing themselves. And the result of that has been healing. The Spirit of God is bringing healing and, and, and people are overcoming sin. Praise God for that. It's been a helpful and loving kind of moment in the life of our church. And, and in the same way, I think church discipline has the same kind of loving and healthy posture about it. It's not about the pastors of the church acting as cops, going around to catch you when you sin. That's not church discipline at all. It's about you. It's about us as a, as a church family acting like a family, acting like a family that actually loves one another. And when there is serious and unrepentant and outward sin, we love one another enough to correct one another and to restore one another. I always say 95% of church discipline, no elder of the church ever knows about because it's private and people repent because this is what a family does. This is what people that love one another do. The people that really love you are the people that are both willing to correct you and then willing to walk alongside you and restore you. Many of y'all know that Barrett Fisher has been one of my best friends for a long time. We met first day of class at Auburn University at Auburn Bowl. We did a little bowling night with some friends that night. We met, became buddies, been friends ever since. And he's been a great encouragement in my life in so many ways. But there was a time I remember very particularly, and I had fallen into a pattern of sin. And it wasn't, I mean, the world would have looked at this and said, ah, it's not that big of a deal. But it was certainly a pattern of sin. It was not pure. It was not God-honoring. But the thing is, and, you know, I would feel conviction about it from time to time. But here's the deal. Other people knew about this. Like, people knew that, that this was going on in my life, and they didn't seem to care. And so I kind of was like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. And one night, 
Barrett called me over and we sat, he sat me down. He said, Jason, this is a sin. You've got to stop this. What are you doing? You know this doesn't please God. You know this is not right. You know the Lord is not happy with this. And when he said that and when he did that, immediately the conviction that I so needed was brought upon me. And I was able to overcome that sin. It, it just was immediate. The Holy Spirit kind of received this power in my heart, and I, I was able to overcome that sin. Now, what was that? That was an act of love. That, that is church discipline. That, that is 95% of church discipline. We go to one another and say, brother, I see this in your life. It's not good. I love you. We need to work on this. Don't you see this? Now, sometimes people don't repent, Right? And so we, we actually see in Matthew 18, there's, there's a next step and an, even a next step. But, but here's what church discipline is. A lot of the sin that's in my life, the Holy Spirit will convict me of. A lot of times I don't need a correction because I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, and the Holy Spirit, when I sin, will convict me and I'll be able to repent. But sometimes, like in the case that I just mentioned, I become deceived. The Bible says a lot about being self-deceived. Watch out for self-deception. You can, you can deceive yourself. And like in that case, I had deceived myself. I had deceived myself into thinking this was okay. And actually, I want you to hear this. The fact that I knew other believers knew about that sin in my life and didn't do anything about it added to the self-deception. It more so gave me license to be, to be like, oh, well, this, is, this isn't a big deal. All these people know about it. And I was deceived. But when Barrett corrected me, it was like that was the weight that needed to be placed on me. It was enough weight that needed to be placed on me that woke me up, that gave me this moment of clarity to see that what I was doing was not pleasing to the Lord. And I was able to repent. And that's really what all of church discipline is. So if you go with two or three others, it's, it's, to, it's to bring a little more weight and to say, hey, Two or three of us are here. Please repent. Don't you see what's happening here? Don't you see this isn't pleasing to God? If it's taken to the whole church, and I believe we do this in an honorable way here, if it's necessary, if it goes on in unrepentance, we even, as, a, as a church body would say, brother, sister, stop this thing. This is gonna destroy you. It's gonna destroy your marriage. It's gonna destroy your, your Christian witness. It's gonna destroy your, your relationship with other believers. It's gonna destroy your relationship with God. Stop this thing, please. It's love. Now, there's some guidelines, as I said. It's, it's serious. It's, <laughs> it's unrepentant. It's outward. It's manifest in some way, right? And I think those are good things. We, we are going to sin. I just want you to know. You're in a church, I know you think, oh, Christ's covenant, the perfect church. We're not, we're all sinners. We're gonna sin against one another. And as I said, hopefully most of our sin, the Holy Spirit causes conviction, the Holy Spirit will, will cover. And so, you know, if it's, if it's a sin here, there, we don't need a culture where every time somebody does something that might be suspected as sin, we go to them and say, we need to have a little talk. No, it's serious. It's when it becomes serious. It becomes a pattern. You see, this is something that is happening true. It's unrepentant, too. There's no repentance. Once somebody repents of a sin and turns away, they don't need to be continually reminded about that time they sinned way back then. That's also not loving and healthy. And it's, and it's outward, right? It has to be some sort of manifestation of the sin. You can't just say, you know what? I, it seems to me there might be a little pride in your heart. 
I'll go ahead and say you could say that to everybody in here, and it's probably true. But how is it manifesting, right? So, for example, you might say, look, brother, I've never seen you serve. There's been so many needs. There's been so many times you've been asked to serve, and you've always said no. It's almost like you have something good to do. You never respond to the needs that the Lord puts in your way. Is that evidence of pride in your life? Like, so that's, that's something that's manifest. It's outward. So it's serious, unrepentant, and kind of outward-facing sin. Now, there's a lot more I wish I could say about this. Every week, or most weeks, 35 weeks a year, we produce what's called a sermon talkback. And you can ask questions, and you can text in tech questions to us, where we kind of talk back and break down and practically talk about the sermon. And tomorrow, we're going to do a sermon talk back on just practical ways to do this, what this kind of looks like, some guide rules about how to do this with one another. But, but I just want to say this, the worst thing, if you really love one another, if we really love one another, if this is really a covenant community, we'll love one another enough to keep one another from separating ourselves from God. That's what sin does. Sin separates you from God. It separates you from other people. It destroys families. It destroys marriages. It destroys your relationship. It destroys your witness. It destroys your peace. All it does is destroys, destroys, destroys. If we really love one another, we'll, we'll be willing to correct, but we'll also be willing to restore, which is point number two, Christian restoration. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are a spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, this is how you actually know that you're a church and not just a worldly cancel culture. When someone sins and they're caught in that transgression, we aren't the people that get away from them quickly. We aren't the people that shun them. We're not just quick to cancel them. Self-righteousness and self-centeredness, these are the two greatest problems that I know about <laughs> Self-righteousness says, I'm better than you. Self-centeredness says, I'm more important than you. Self-righteousness and self-centeredness, these are the two greatest problems. They, they lead to division, they lead to hate, they lead to fear, they lead to pride, they lead to all sorts of problems. And here's the deal. I don't know of a religion, I don't know of a worldview that doesn't push you toward one or the other of those or both except for Christianity. Christianity is the only thing that I know that pushes you away from self-righteousness and away from self-centeredness. You can't be self-righteous and be a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian, but you're not actually a Christian. You, you have to. The, the definition of being a Christian is to be dependent on the righteousness of Christ. You, you have to say, I'm not righteous. I need another one's righteousness. That is what it means to be a Christian. You're trusting in the righteousness of Christ, that he died for your unrighteousness, that he overcame all of that and offers you life. That is the basic tenets of the gospel. You can't be self-righteous and be a Christian. It's, it's by definition pushing you toward the righteousness of someone else. And also you can't be self-centered. Christianity is a call away from self-centeredness. It's a call to god Centeredness. Every other worldview I know, in one way or the other, will push, you, will push you to say, be better than them, be more important than them, be served by them. Christianity says, no. <laughs> That's why these calls are so hard. Love them. Humble yourself before them. Submit to them. 
And it's only really when you're a Christian that you're pushed away from self-centeredness and self-righteousness that restoration happens. Because here's the deal. Restoration's hard. You gotta humble yourself. You gotta come alongside the transgressor when everybody else is running away. You gotta run in. You gotta deal with these, sometimes these sin patterns that cut deep in our hearts that have caused great emotional, psychological, spiritual damage. That these things have real effects. It's hard to bear with someone in those situations. These things take time. They're complex. It can be incredibly embarrassing. But it really is evidence that you actually love one another in Christ. You know, so many of you know the story about my dad. My dad was a pastor of a big and prominent church in Huntsville, Alabama. And around the time that I was kind of finishing high school, he fell into a sin pattern. And, you know, there's probably some evidences for it, but everybody just kind of trusted him. He was a spiritual leader. But he, he ended up having an affair. And it was a very horrible and embarrassing and public sort of thing. I mean, you can imagine what that's like when a pastor of a prominent church has an affair. And it was very, very difficult for our family. And one of the reasons, I mean, it was obviously difficult for our family, but one of the reasons it was so difficult for our family was because our church that we loved. I mean, it was our church. We loved our church. And we were church members there too, even though we were, of course, the pastor's family. Our church just didn't know how to deal with it particularly the church leaders. And so when it happened and it came out, of course, my dad, he was totally wrong. It was a great transgression. He needed correction. But there was no effort at restoration. All the church really did was just kind of give him, they kind of said, we got to make sure we take care of the reputation of the church. And again, I, I want to say, I, don't, I have no bitterness. I, I love this church. I love this church to this day. I'm not mad at this church at all. I want us to do better. When one of us falls, when one of us falls down, are we, are we the kind of people that run in? Or are we the kind of people that say, well, this is awkward. <laughs> this is embarrassing now. We don't know what to do. What will people think of us? What, people, what will people say? Are we willing to kind of push through all of that? Because we actually love one another. My dad needed to be corrected but he also needed to be restored. And, and what God did in his kindness was he did send a few people. Like there was this guy named Ron who'd gone through kind of something similar. And he was one of the only guys that when that happened to my dad really ran in. And he said, you know, I'm not gonna let this sin destroy you. And, and through this guy, and there were several, there was a couple others too. My dad's marriage was restored. My dad, our family is great. His ministry was restored. And now this gifted man that God's clearly called, clearly gifted, that, that had a huge transgression, God is using mightily for his kingdom. Brothers, when one of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, you who really love the Lord, you who are following the way of Christ, restore him. You know what the next verse says? It says, bear one another's burdens. And then it says this, fulfill the law of Christ. That's the law of Christ. That's the law of Christ, right? Jesus, who, 
who had all holiness and all righteousness, the audience with God himself, took on all of our sin. How embarrassing is that? What if you're God and you're hanging on a criminal's cross? Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Be like Jesus is. And then finally, there's a call to Christian watchfulness. I love the way it ends. It says, watch out. Keep watch of yourselves. Lest you too be tempted. There is this principle of Christian watchfulness. You know, whenever I see like a Christian leader or preacher just railing on some sin with, with no soberness, no sober-mindedness in his or her heart, I always kind of think that person may have a sin issue in their heart. I maybe shouldn't judge them. Lou always corrects me for judging people's motives. So I'm sorry if I sin when I'm doing this, Lou. But I'm always like, what, what is going on in their heart that is leading them to this kind of lack of sober-mindedness? And I think that this warning is really good. We, we should always be sober in the face of sin. You, you never graduate from fighting sin. You never graduate from fighting sin. You never graduate from putting to death the old man. You never graduate from just the classic disciplines that, that, that grew you in the first place. I think that's the problem. That's where Christians really start get, to get messed up. They think, well, I've read the Bible. I've prayed. No. Bible reading, prayer, confession of sin. These are things, these are habits, these are disciplines that, that are always true of our lives. Watch out. Lest you yourself fall into sin. There, there is this idea of Christian watchfulness where we're called to keep an eye on ourselves and we're called to keep an eye in love on one another. You know, Christianity is so different, isn't it? I find myself thinking all the time like, man, I am so doomed without Jesus. I am not like this. This is so... This is so different for me. This is something that only God could do in my life. I am like the middle schooler consumed with rank. I am like this. These are the, these are the natural tendencies of my life. It's only God's grace that calls me away from these things, that calls me to something better, that calls me to actually be like Christ is, who left the throne room of heaven. There's, there's, no, more, there's no better table than that. There's no better boardroom than that. There's no higher position than that. There's no higher calling than that. Jesus who left the throne room of heaven to identify with people like you and me and to take on our worst. Jesus identifies you when you're at your worst. And he, you know what Jesus does when he does that? He restores you. This is the work of Christ. He's restoring us. He's restoring us. He's leading us gently to love what he loves, to delight in what he loves. He's purifying our hearts. This is what happens when you look to him in faith. This is what happens when the gospel penetrates your heart and life. And if this has happened to you and if it's happened to me, then, then this can be true of us. We can be a church like this. That when we, get, we fall into transgression, we actually love one another enough to correct one another and to restore one another and to bear the burdens of one another because this is the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you 
<laughs> for people that you, by the power of your word and spirit, have led into my life, people like Barrett Fisher and many others that have corrected me and that have restored me. And I thank you, Lord, that you have done this work through them and through your church and through your word. I pray you would even do it now, Lord, in our hearts. I pray we'd be responsive to this, that we would love one another in this way, bearing with one another in this way, and to in this, Lord, fulfill the law of Christ. May this truth plant itself deeply in our hearts today, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.